Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network interview with Gail Pendleton, co-director at Assista Immigration Assistance. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. Gail is here today to talk to us about the new guidance on U visa certification. She is an expert after many, many years of practice, more than, what, 20, 30? Yes, a little more than 20 now. (laughs) And in particular, her focus has been on U visas since they were created. She has acted as liaison with the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services on U visas. She is our number one go-to contact person at Ian on all matters related to the U visa and other issues that uh, touch on legal support for attorneys who work with immigrant survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Well, Gail, let's start with a broad and general introduction to what the U visa certification guidance sets out to do. Okay, and let me just um, amend slightly what you said, because my understanding is that many of you who are listening to this may actually not be attorneys. You may be domestic violence or sexual assault advocates. And I think the reason I wanted to do this podcast is I think this new Department of Homeland Security guidance for law enforcement is actually an extremely useful tool for all of you, attorneys and advocates alike, in your work with law enforcement and trying to get certification. Um, so you would ask, what is this thing and where did it come from, basically? Right. Okay, so the guidance, actually, if you look at it, you can download it from um, the web at the Department of Homeland Security website. We will also, I think it was sent out to the listeners, and we'll make sure that it's accessible on the Ian website. Um, It actually is a product of experience, both from those of us who are practitioners who've been out trying to train law enforcement for the past 10 years, and, in fact, CIS going out and training law enforcement in, I think, probably been about four or five years they've been out doing that and doing webinars for law enforcement. And what we realized, talking together, is that there are common issues that come up, which I think many of you have experienced when you're trying to work with law enforcement to get certification. And so we had several calls and back and forth with folks at Department of Homeland Security, particularly Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, about what are those questions and how can DHS answer them, because one of the main practice lawyers I have on working with law enforcement is that we, especially immigration lawyers, are really not the best um, messengers for law enforcement on this stuff. And clearly, a very trusted messenger for law enforcement would be the Department of Homeland Security. So what you'll find in here is not only some basic, you know, outline of what it is and what the job of law enforcement is, but actually addressing some specific issues that have come up in the experience we've all had out in the field. And so hopefully this addresses many of the questions you've had raised by law enforcement when you're working with them. One caveat would be is if you're seeing things that aren't addressed in this guidance, let me know because we are having this fairly productive dialogue, at least with the folks at headquarters, on um, what else law enforcement needs from the Department of Homeland Security. All right. And to give the guidance some... um a setting. Let's talk about the U visa itself. What are the components and elements of the case? Right. So 
probably most of you have done some work on U visas. Um, I'm going to actually organize the eligibility requirements by who should be doing the most work on them. So um, what the law enforcement certification covers that our basic eligibility requirements are that this person is a victim and they are a victim of one of the qualifying categories of crimes under the U visa. So those are kind of two different things, and we'll come back to those later. Um, they do certify that they possess information about the criminal activity. That's usually not a problem if everything else is happening with the certification. Um, and the key part is that they certify that they were helpful, are being helpful, or are likely to be helpful in an investigation or prosecution of a qualifying crime. And it hopefully we'll provide some detail on that on your certification. We can come back to that later if you'd like. Um, then, in addition to that, which is mostly covered by the certification and any supporting documentation from the criminal system, um, you also have to show that the applicant suffered the phrase is substantial physical or mental abuse. But I think the way CIS actually thinks about it is harm. It doesn't have to be kind of what we normally think of domestic violence type abuse. Um, and that is usually not going to come from law enforcement, although they can speak to it. Um, and we'll come back to that later because that's been one of the problems I know some of you have experienced out there. Um, and it is the piece that those of you are who do work with victims, particularly the domestic violence and sexual assault advocates, you are the ones that we're looking to to work on that. And there's some guidance on the EN website for you on how to do that. Then the third piece, which is the part that those of you who are immigration experts need to work on, is that you have to show the person is either admissible or is uh, eligible for a national or public interest waiver for being inadmissible. And we have... Um, more doc more documents about that and information about that on the EN website, because that's a whole other area. We're not going to cover that um, today. And I noticed that among the provisions in the guidance, it states that the law enforcement agency may document the harm or injury. Where does that fit in, and has that become an expectation that they will help with that documentation? Well, so one of the reasons, we actually asked them to specifically address that, because we were hearing, and I was seeing, some um, refusals to sign U visa certifications because they were triaging people out because they didn't think they'd suffered substantial harm. And the guidance is actually very good. I'm going to start giving page numbers, so you should be writing these down for when you um, um, download the document. Page 8 and page 11 are very good on this. They do say they may, but they go into a lot of detail about how this is the stuff CIS is trained on, and you really, if you want to speak to it, that's fine, but that's really not your job. And that hope, I would definitely use those particular quotes if that's one of the issues you're seeing with your law enforcement. Show them those pages and say, this is not your job to be deciding someone hasn't suffered substantial harm. If you think they have, then great, you can provide more information. But this is something that we actually document with our advocates and people who actually have expertise on working with victims. And CIS is the one that makes the decision on that. Okay. And what are the qualifying crimes that would render someone eligible for a visa? Okay. I'm not actually going to go through the whole list, but um, in general, I know, and so one thing I do want to suggest people not use is the phrase violent crimes, because they really aren't all violent crimes. And I've seen, and it, you'll see in the, they never use that phrase here in this guidance, because if you look at the list of crimes, some of them are violent. Um, they often they would fall, many of them, into what I would call gender violence crimes that aren't always against women, but most often against women. 
like domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, there's some crimes against children that have been used, for instance, in the post-bill raids where children were being forced to work. Um, and there's a whole list of crimes that we put in because we didn't realize they were doing the B visa. <laughs> so we are seeing trafficking victims getting U visas from state and local law enforcement um, under those sections that are about indentured services and things like that. And then if you look on the right-hand side of the list of crimes in the statute or on your, if you have PowerPoints or whatever, you'll see there's things that I call messing with the system crimes, like obstruction of justice and perjury. Um, and what we're seeing is those are being used in cases where the person may not, is usually testifying as a witness in a crime, um, and they're not actually a victim of the crime they're test about, testifying about, let's say a drug ring or something like that. But because they're testifying, the perpetrators, the organized crime or whatever, are calling them up and, and threatening them, and then they do become a victim of one of those kinds of crimes. And the other area of this, none of this is really discussed in the guidance, but as long as you ask me, I'll give you a few practice pointers on this. The other area we're seeing a lot of people try to use is for notarial fraud and other forms of fraud, which fraud is not listed as a qualifying crime. So what they're trying to do is get those in under other sections. The only section I've seen be successful that, with that is extortion. And um, the problem with that is even if you can show that it's extortion and get a certification for it, where I'm seeing the denial is, in, again, in showing the substantial harm. Which goes back to that point that's made multiple times in this document for law enforcement that even if you sign the certification, it doesn't mean the person's going to get granted. Because because I do most of the back and forth with CIS on this and advocate for the field, I can tell you that it's not the certifications that we're getting denials on. It's the substantial harm and invisibility. Hmm. Now, what do you recommend putting together uh, when approaching the local enforcement agency? What kind of documents should be included, or how do you request their assistance on the certification? For approaching local law enforcement? Yeah. Um, well, I think, actually, it has less to do with kind of legal issues and documentation as it does with um, kind of organizing and what I call social psychological skills, which is, and there's an article, several articles on the website that I've written about how to work with law enforcement, and you're not going to find any of this in the guidance, obviously, but basically what I suggest you do, especially for your lawyer, is step back and think about who do you think law enforcement trusts, and it's not going to be lawyers. So unless you already have a relationship with them, the key thing for you to do is find a person they do trust, and that's going to be probably your domestic violence and sexual assault advocates, because many of them work with law enforcement and they serve on coordinating councils and other um, groups that bring together people in the criminal and civil system to work together. So that's my main thing, is that you should not be, if you don't cold call law enforcement, <laughs> work with someone who they trust to be your introducer and then ask for a meeting and do not Start your conversations with a real case. If you can, if you can have a meeting before you have a real case, that's much better than trying to work out a system with them in crisis. And once you have a system where they trust you and they'll take your calls, um, one of the things you want to find out from your meetings with them is, do they want you to fill out the form for them and just have them sign it, or you will they be offended if you do that and just uh, and would rather that they fill it out talking to you. Um, and not have you fill out any of it. One of the reasons that I would highly recommend asking them to fill it out, or at least the parts about what the crime is, is they know a lot more about what facts meet what category of crime than we do. 
that's one of the things I've learned from working with law enforcement. There are many, many, many kinds of crimes that may be domestic violence. There may be felonious assault. We don't know what they're called. So if we're checking things off and precluding them thinking about those other crimes, we may be stopping a certification that people could otherwise get if we were asking them about their areas of expertise. So the way I, what I suggest is present to them the facts of the case and say, what crimes do you think are going on here? And he, let's remember what the categories of crimes are in the UV statute. Do you think any of these are going on here? For instance, domestic violence can cover anything from misdemeanor assault to choking to stalking, none of which are listed as crimes. Um, felonious assault, both CIS um, and DHS have mentioned cases where a robbery could be a felonious assault, even though it's thought of as a robbery. The facts may show that it's a felonious assault. So start with the facts if you if you don't already have a criminal case to show them. Obviously, if there's an existing criminal case, which many of you are going to be dealing with older cases or cases in process, then you just want to give them all the documents that you already have from the criminal case and say, here's what's going on, let's review what the categories are and what the helpfulness is, and is there any other way my client can be helpful? Which I, I want to come back to because one thing you'll see that's maybe daunting in the guidance is that repeatedly it's talking about um, ongoing assistance being required as long as it's a reasonable request. And so I think there is a burden on you folks, the advocates and the attorneys, to work with your clients to try to be helpful to law enforcement even after the certification is signed. Interesting. It sounds like a relationship-building process. Like you want yes. to meet with them ahead of time and maybe talk about these guidance, the guidance in general, and establish that relationship before you actually have to go with a specific case. Yes, and I actually did a whole podcast um, webinar that we did for Ian on how to work with law enforcement. It kind of breaks down how I do the training with them and why. Like, what's, what's the psychological reason behind we do the things a certain way? So that you can adapt it to your own situation, but use the kind of fundamental organizing principles behind it. All right. Can you talk about who is authorized to sign the form, how it should be signed, and how it is submitted? Okay. Well, the... Um, Guidance actually is very good on this. Um, as you all probably know, it doesn't just have to be prosecutors and um, police. It can also be judges and other agencies such as EEOC, DOL, including your state versions of those, and um, Family Protective Services, Child Protective Services, whatever it's called in your jurisdiction, can sign. And that's none of that. The judges are in the statute, but the rest of those agencies aren't listed in the statute. And the reason they're in there, actually, is because we had 10 years before they actually implemented regulations. And during that time, when we had the interim relief period, we were able to convince CIS that, in fact, these agencies do at least detect some of these crimes, even if they don't formally investigate or prosecute the crimes, and that it's really important that they have this authority because otherwise you may have a lot of crimes going on in the workplace, such as sexual assault against women and kids or extortion. Uh, other crimes in the workplace that um, would not be revealed because they wouldn't be identified. The only agencies that would be aware of them would be the kind of workplace violation agencies. Um, and the similar with Child Protective Services, that they are the ones who are maybe the, what we call the first point of entry for many crimes against kids. Now, the challenge for those of you who are working with these agencies is that they're not used to identifying the fact that they view as violations as crimes. And so, although they all now at this point finally agree that they can do certifications, I suggest you may still have to do a lot of education with your local people on how the things that they're seeing are crimes that fit under the, the And 
I'm wondering whether you anticipate any additional outreach and education by USCIS. Well, so CIS actually is already doing quite a bit of outreach and education. So if you're not familiar with that, um, if you're on VAWA updates or listservs, you should be familiar with that, and I encourage everyone who's listening to this um, to get on it. It's a one-way thing, so it's not a lot of email, and it's the way we send out this kind of information. What they've done is they have, I think, about four webinars a year just for law enforcement. So the way that I can give you guys an email for the person at CIS who does it, and you can connect with your law enforcement and get them in the loop for those webinars. They also, over the years, have identified jurisdictions where there's serious problems with getting um, people to sign certifications, and they've gone out and done training for law enforcement in those areas. For instance, they did one in L.A. a while ago. And then there's always, of course, follow-up because people are confused by the training. But they've got specific people at CIS who I can connect you to um, who actually have conversations with local law enforcement about how the process works. They can't tell law enforcement to sign a certification, but they can disabuse them of a lot of misinformation they have or concerns they have, which is actually included in the guidelines. Is it okay if I move into what I think the key things are in the guidelines at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I organize it into basically three different categories, and they're not all in the same place, so I'm going to also give you page numbers. The first category I think they address pretty well is the common problems that we see with law enforcement understanding their role in certifications. And so the first one, which many of you experience, is that law enforcement won't sign old cases or closed cases. This guidance actually addresses it really well in a bunch of different places. On page 1, 4, and 10, it talks about that. Um, And I'm going to read you in a second a quote um, that includes that. The second big issue that is often raised by the lawyers that work at law enforcement is whether they're going to be liable for criminal conduct later on, and the guidance explicitly addresses that at page 10. So, practice pointer, actually highlight those excerpts if that's an issue and show them to law enforcement. Um, They don't even have to read the whole thing. They can just read those sections. The second thing we talked about a little bit is that it's not their job to triage for the other um, eligibility requirements. We already covered the substantial harm. With that page is 8 and 11 in the guidance where they kind of go on about how this is what they're trained to do. There's a section on how being detained or having final removal orders doesn't prevent getting a new visa. That's at page 9, and they also specifically there mention that ICE has discretion and should be exercising discretion to not remove victims. It says they don't have any sites in here, but what basically they're talking about is the prosecutorial discretion memos, which are now on the Ian website, but I think the victim one is in the new visa section. The third thing that comes up a lot where law enforcement may triage people out is a is a concern about fraud and a concern about criminal conduct or immigration violations and that they may say they don't deserve to file get a U visa because of that. Again, the guidance is very good at pages fourteen and fifteen, basically saying this is not your job, this is our job. And we do a lot of work figuring out fraud and we do a, we're the ones who know you know, whether criminal activity and immigration violations um, should prevent someone from getting a waiver or not, that's not your job. So I definitely use those sections if you're having that problem with your local law enforcement. Um, so now I want to read you a section on helpfulness that I think is, um, is really good. This is on page four. It says, a current investigation, the filing of charges, a prosecution or conviction are not required to sign the law enforcement certification. Many instances may occur where the victim has reported a crime. So I'm going to 
comment on that, because many of your law enforcement agencies will want more than a report. It is up to their discretion to decide that, but you can definitely use this quote to show that CIS thinks reporting may be enough. Um, so it says may occur where the victim has reported a crime, but an arrest or prosecution cannot take place due to evidentiary or other circumstances. Examples of this include, but are not limited to, when the perp not limited to, remember that, right? When the perpetrator has fled or is otherwise no longer in the jurisdiction, the perpetrator can't be identified or the perpetrator has been deported by federal law enforcement officials. There is no statute of limitations on signing the law enforcement certification. A law enforcement certification can even be submitted for a victim in a closed case. You've got it right there that you can use with them to tell them this is what the law is for. And then there's um, like this doesn't cover a lot of the kind of big picture reasons why they w might want to do it, but it does talk about in some places why Congress passed the law. And I think that the important point to make with law enforcement about closed cases is that the goal here isn't really just to help with individual cases. It's to encourage this population that's living underground because they think they're going to get deported if they access the criminal justice system to start working with law enforcement. And so that's why it's a very broad statute and includes old cases because you want to encourage immigrant communities to be working with law enforcement. Okay, so then... Um, but this is where, though, the, in terms of helpfulness, the unreasonably refusing to help comes up quite a bit. So one practice point for all of you is that since one of my jobs, in addition to working with CIS, is to be, give technical assistance to you, is if this is a concern for you, that you have a client who doesn't want to continue to be helpful or stop being helpful, contact me and we can talk about how to rectify that. Because that, that could be a problem with getting the certification or for getting a green card down the line. Because they do have to... It, although the statute doesn't actually say you have to provide ongoing assistance, I don't think it's wrong for them to view that as one of the goals of the statute because there, there were two goals of the statute, not just to help victims of crime, but also to help law enforcement. And for those of you listening to this, you need to keep that second point in mind all the time because it's very different from what most of the other work we do with immigrants is going to be about. Okay, so then the other piece I want to actually read to you is about what crimes might um, qualify, and that's on page 13 that I'm going to directly quote for you. And the point here is that this is the kind of practice pointer here for you is that these this list of crimes that are in the statute is a, a category, the list of categories of crimes, which is what the introduction to the regulations on U visa say, and that's really important to remember, as I said earlier, because it means the crimes don't actually have to be called what um, they are called in the in the statute, and that um, it could be something that was either not initially investigated and ended up being charged. It could be something that was initially investigated, like domestic violence, and you end up being charged with something else. Um, or it could be something that isn't called any of the things in the crime, but the facts show that it's um, one of the qualifying crimes. So let me um, give you what they have to say about this. Uh, law enforcement certification is valid regardless of whether the initial crime being investigated is different from the crime that is eventually prosecuted. As long as a person is a victim of a qualifying criminal activity, that person may be eligible for a U visa. And then they go on to give the examples I just gave you. Um, the one that actually I had suggested that they include in here that actually came from law enforcement is that often um, police will, for instance, show up from a domestic violence call at someone's house and then find drugs. And since they just put the abuser away for a much longer period of time for the drug trafficking or the drug possession, 
they'll often end up charging them with drugs. And the only way that you know it was domestic violence is because that was what the, the initial call was about. Your client may qualify as a victim of domestic violence based on um, the U visa, even though, you know, it was only minorly investigated. As long as there was some investigation into one of the categories of crimes, the person could qualify. Okay. And just a couple other things. Um, on page 8 and 9, one of the other issues that's come up with actually signing the forms is that the regulations actually go way beyond the statute and who can sign the forms. They, they say it has to be a chief or a supervisor. And we, we did a lot of jumping up and down and yelling about how that's not what the statute required. So what you see in here on pages 8 and 9 is basically their accommodation to that. Um, and the summary of the accommodation is that as long as the chief or supervisor puts in writing who they're delegating the youth signing authority to, that's fine. And they actually suggest you do a letter, and what I suggest you do is just make lots of copies of the letter, and every time you have a certification signed by someone who isn't obviously a chief or supervisor but has been delegated that authority, you just slap that uh, letter onto the end, and in your cover letter say, you'll note that this is a designated youth supervisor, using a task letter. And they, in fact, mention specifically that victim witness advocates can be um, designated youth certified. So don't be limited by what the regulations say. Use pages 8 and 9 here to show that it's really very broad. And that actually more comports with the goal of the statute in terms of being useful to law enforcement. It's not useful for law enforcement if everything has to get funneled up through the chief. Um, and then finally, it actually, the other big issue that I see in terms of just how certifications are filled out, which goes back to what your original question was, <laughs> is uh, on indirect victims on page 13. This is a very confusing concept for law enforcement, right? Because you're asking them, in their eyes, the victim is the child. This is the example they use here. Um, and the most typical cases are either family members of murder victims or parents of sexually assaulted children. And, they, and it says here um, in this that it doesn't matter what the status of the child is. So you could have a child who was born here with undocumented parents. If the child is a victim of abuse by one parent, um, the other parent can be an indirect victim if they are helpful to law enforcement. And this does a pretty good job of explaining it. My practice pointer for you on this is that it's going to really confuse CIS if the certification identifies the child as the victim. Certification, and hopefully you can use this memo to help explain it to law enforcement, has to identify the helpful parent as a quote-unquote indirect victim who was helpful in the investigation of the sexual assault against the child. Because what, well, what I've seen is that CIS will send you back a notice saying, well, the child doesn't qualify, they're a citizen, why are you asking for it? And then you have to fix it and, and explain it to them and send it back. And it's much better if you get it clear in the certification that the focus of the eligibility is on the indirect victim parent who's providing the helpfulness, who's got the information, um, and who's helping with the crime victim um, who is the child. It seems like the list of indirect victims, the list of qualifying crimes, all get to the sort of overall goal of creating protections for people who might otherwise be not willing to come forward or even being somehow coerced or threatened against coming Forward. Right. Right. And giving basically a tool for law enforcement to use. So if they show up at a crime scene and the woman's not talking and the the other, the, the male, I'm going to just use the gender norms 
hear, who knows, not always true. The male speaks English, the woman doesn't speak English, and she, she, won't, she won't talk to them. They can say, you know, if the reason you're afraid is that we're going to deport you, A, that's not our job, and B, you should know about the U visa. Or they can have their victim advocates do that once they've been brought into court. We, we, we do training for judges, and that's what we suggest they do, that their victim advocates notify victims who show up. The reason they're afraid of talking to the judge is that they think they're going to get deported if they do, because often the perpetrator told them that, that that's not true, and here's some information about the U visa. So you've identified maybe three or four main areas of helpfulness with this guidance. Were there any remaining concerns that the new guidance failed to address or that you hope might be addressed in the future? Well, I don't know what to, to be honest with you, I don't know what to do about jurisdictions that refuse to do it, with, mainly because I think of the anti-immigrant political climate. Um, we did try, we're, we're working on VAWA 4 right now, legislation, and we tried to get an exception to the certification requirement where you can show that law enforcement won't sign it. And it's just, the political times right now are so bad that I'm not even sure we're going to, we can't get that, and I'm not even sure we're going to get anything of the immigration improvements that we need. So, unfortunately, I think what this means is that we're all going to have to hold the Department of Homeland Security, the attorney, the U.S. Attorney General's Office and Department of Justice accountable for spreading the word that everyone should do it. And actually, there is a quote in here from DHS saying that they encourage all law enforcement agencies to to have a program for U visas, and they suggest a couple of the best practice sections on page 8 that gives a couple examples of how they can do it. Um, but again, unfortunately, you can't successfully really sue law enforcement for failing to find because it is discretionary on that part. So it is, again, an organizing issue. And in addition to asking, I think, our federal agencies to kind of try to get all law enforcement with the program, I would suggest working with the state attorneys general you know, if you're in a state like California, um, where they're sympathetic as opposed to trying to pass any immigrant laws. And um, on the local level, again, your domestic violence and sexual assault partners, both local agencies and your state coalitions, are going to be crucial allies in this. The other place to think about is faith-based um, organizations that may be your allies in doing messengers on why law enforcement should be doing something with the agency. So, again, unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot more than just kind of in trying to influence them to do it at this point that we can do. Is there anything else that we should cover now, Gail, and what resources would you like to point out at ASISTA, and how could people reach you for follow-up questions? Um, well, so my email, which I'll say in the spell, is gailpendleton at comcast.net, G-A-I-L-E-N-D-L-E-T-O-N at comcast.net. However, there's also um, the forum, which you might want to explain in more detail when I'm done, Pat. There's a UVs of forum where you can post actually through the Ian website, and, and um, Christy Pop and I answer your questions on that. And then um, uh, there's a link to Assista on the website. I do. I am supposed to update the UV section in the next couple of weeks, although there's a lot of written stuff from CIS, I think we can give you some new samples and things that aren't already on there. But I would definitely take a look there, because basically everything that I put on the ASISA website, I put on the Ian website. Um, and we do, if you get any money from the Office of Violence Against Women or from a state stop grant program, if you don't know what that is, ask me, um, we can, we, we are there for you. We are paid by the Office of Violence Against Women or the Department of Justice to, be, to give you training in PA. And I think 
Pat and Kim, we are now, um, you are now taping all our webinars and putting them on the EN website. So even if you don't qualify, you can access all our webinars through the EN website if you're interested. Thank you, Gail. Yeah, Gail's right. We have a community forum on our website, www.immigrationadvocates.org, that she generously staffs. So if you have questions on U visas and related matters, you can submit them to Gail. And in addition to um, her work at ASISTA and acting as liaison with Department of Homeland Security and USCIS on U visas, she keeps our library and our information at Ian up-to-date uh, for you to access as well. Well, thank you so much, Gail Pendleton and Asista, for your expertise and your time. Thank you.